Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, um, <clears throat> the chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and then 20 through 25. So the book of Romans, Paul's writing to the Romans, and the primary theme is the basic gospel, God's plan for salvation and righteousness for all humankind, both Jews and Gentile alike. The section we are going to read is about Abraham being justified by faith, and in it Paul quotes Psalm 32, which is the text for the sermon. So Romans 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And then to verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The text for the sermon is Psalm 32, which Pastor Winston will read as part of the content of the sermon. And after the sermon, immediately following it, we will sing from Psalm 32, the verses 1 through 5. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, this is a favorite psalm of Augustine in ancient times. It was a favorite psalm of Martin Luther. It is a psalm of David. The, the title is a masculine of David. That's a a liturgical uh, term. We're not quite sure what it means, but it seems that psalms that are titled masculines are psalms that ask us to particularly meditate on the meaning of this psalm. Let's read this psalm together. A masculine of David, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. 
You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, let us start right off with with that little wisdom section in verses 8 through 9, where the Lord himself is saying to those who read this psalm, I've got my eye on you, I'm looking at you, Listen to me. Don't be stubborn like a mule or a horse. Don't sit here today as the psalm is read and is preached, daydreaming about something else. The Lord is speaking to us. Hear his instruction and his teaching and his counsel. And you might ask, well, why the the serious exhortation to really pay attention as we read this psalm? What is so serious that the Lord wants us to know? Well, you're going to find that in this psalm, what the Lord wants us to know is that he wants our Christian lives to be happy lives. He wants our Christian lives to be smiling lives. The Lord does not want your Christian life to be a drag. Some people have the the funny idea that the more serious you are about your faith, the longer your face gets. And you walk around all serious and your your brow is frowned and you're you're sort of like all, all so serious. And this psalm is saying, no, The facial expression of a believer who really understands the good news is that they have a smile on their face. The Lord wants you, reading this psalm, he wants you to understand to live a happy Christian life and to smile. You look at that in in verse 1, it mentions the word blessed two times. Blessed, blessed. You could translate that as happy, happy. And then the last verse talks about being glad and rejoicing and shouting for joy. So it begins and it ends with being happy. It's got joyful bookends on this psalm. So this is a psalm that you ought to read in such a way that at the end it makes you smile. So go ahead, you can practice already now. Give me a big smile. All right. I've entitled this message, How to Be a Happy Christian. How to Be a Happy Christian. I'm going to talk about two things that we, we, we take from this psalm. One is confess your sin, and then second, shout for joy. Be a happy Christian. Confess your sin, and then shout for joy. All right? So first, confess your sin. Well, brothers and sisters, I've been bottling something up, and it needs to come out. Not really, but I like that expression, bottling something up. It's an interesting expression. It, it, it portrays the idea that there's something that I, that I ought to talk about, there's something that I ought to say, but I've not been saying it, and I've been hiding it down in the pit of my stomach, down in the pit of my heart, and I've stuffed it into a bottle, and I've put a cork on it. I've kept it quiet but the pressure is building. I've been bottling something up. It makes me think of a comic strip I saw once of a, of a psychologist talking to his client who's lying on the couch, and he says, I think you're bottling things up. And then you see the guy lying on the couch, and the whole person is inside of a bottle. He's been bottling up his whole life. So raise your hand if, if you're someone who bottles things up. Well, you're probably not going, oh, maybe some of the people admit me. And you can nudge the person beside you if they're the one who needs, who needs to hear that. You know, you're probably, you're probably like, yeah, well, I know somebody who bottles stuff up. People don't always realize it, but if you bottle things up in your life, it's not healthy for you, is it? You just, if, you, if, you, if you bottle things up and you let that silence grow like a cancer, it's not healthy for you. And David is saying in this psalm that that's also true in terms of when you, in terms of talking about your own sin to God, that you ought not to bottle that up. If you don't confess your sin 
and you bottle it up and you keep silent and you don't deal with it, it's not healthy for you. In verse 3, he says, your bones waste away and you groan all day. It's not healthy for you. When you bottle your, your confession of sin up, you move in the opposite direction of joy. You move away from Christian happiness. So brothers and sisters, I've got something that I need to get off my chest. Not really, but it's a good expression. You need to get something off your chest. What does that mean? It's an interesting expression. It means that there's something I need to talk about, and as long as I don't talk about it, I can, just, I can sort of feel the pressure on me. I've got this weight about me because I'm not speaking about what I ought to be speaking about, and David says that's what it's like if you don't confess your sin. When you don't confess your sin, you have a weight on your chest, and it dries up your strength like the summer sun. That's in verse 4. That weight is described as the heavy hand of God pressing down on your conscience for as long as you don't confess your sin. The heavy weight hand of God that presses down on you is like a weight on your chest as long as you don't confess. I found out this week that Princeton University and Waterloo University here in Canada, they did a study of 600 adults in the United States and in Canada, and they were, they were doing a study of the relationship between guilt and a feeling of weight. And they, you can read about this whole scientific study they do, and they demonstrate that people who live with weight feel heavier. And that's what David's talking about. He's saying that unconfessed sin weighs you down with the heavy hand of God. Now, I find this, this whole conversation very interesting, because here in verse 3 and 4, you've got something that's relatively unique in Scripture. Usually the Bible talks about sin as sort of violence against God or violence against your neighbor, Right? But here in these verses, we're finding that unconfessed sin is sort of a violence that you do against yourself. You know the expression, uh, oh, I'm racked with guilt. You heard that expression before, racked with guilt. You think of what that means. To be racked, that's a reference to like a, to a 15th century torture device where you tie someone's arms and their legs, you know, sort of a bed structure, and you got a crank, and you pull their arms and their legs until all of their joints pop out and, you know, does horrible things to them. It's a torture instrument. And the expression is saying that when you have, go when you have guilt, it's, it's torturous for you. When you're silent, when you refuse to confess your sin, when you bottle up your sin, when you don't get it off your chest, you hurt yourself. That's what this psalm is teaching. Unconfessed sin is self-harm. You end up, to use, a, use an expression from a Mumford & Sons song, you end up biting your own neck. The message puts it this way, the message translation of verse 3 and 4. When I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. All the juices of my life dried up dried up. I'm guessing that about 50% of the people like that expression and other 50% of the people think that is just gross. But th this, this reality of what happens when you bottle things up, when you don't get them off your chest, when you don't confess, I think that, that you already know about this in your own personal lives, in your, in your own relationships. Because you feel that already in your personal relationships when there's something that you want to say to your parents, or there's something you want to say to your kids or something you want to say to a friend or a spouse, but for whatever reason, you're not saying it. You're holding it back. You're bottling it up. And it's torturous, isn't it? It eats you up. I have a, I have a little brother named Tim, and when he was a little kid, 
you, you know, he doesn't watch my sermon, so I can make fun of him in the, in the, in the sermon. He's a, he was, when he was a little kid, he came to the table once, and he sat down, and he was looking all sheepish, and he's sort of like staring at my mom, and he had his head down a little bit, and he's obviously like something bothering him, and, and my, my mom asked him, well, what's wrong, and he didn't say, and it's funny, he's like, I have matches in my pocket. So the little guy had taken matches knowing that it was bad and put it in his pocket and the heavy hand of the Lord weighed upon his conscience and he just bottled it up and he had to get it off his chest. I got matches in my pocket. But some of us, you know, that, that's, a, that's a funny story, but fun, some of us experience that in our own life, don't we? What is going on in your life right now that you should be talking to somebody about, but you're not? For some of you, you've got matches in your pocket, and it's burning a hole in your soul. And it's making you nervous just thinking about it. There's something that perhaps you've done wrong, or that you're doing wrong, or that you're particularly embarrassed about. Maybe it's a, an embarrassing sin. Maybe it's something dirty that seems to be staining you with shame. Maybe it's something you're just simply afraid to admit something that's making your relationship with somebody else a whole lot less than it, can, than it could be. And because you're not talking about it, because you're not being honest about it, you feel the heavy hand of God weighing on your conscience, pressing you down. Some of you know what I'm speaking about. And brother and sister, you're never going to be happy until you get that off your chest. And that, if it's true in your interpersonal relationships, it's also true in your relationship with God. When you keep silent, when you refuse to really honestly confess your sin to the Lord, you only harm yourself, you torture yourself, and you stop your relationship with the Lord your God uh, from being all that it could be. Grammy Award winner Jason Isbell has a song called Cover Me Up, and the first line goes like this, a heart on the run keeps a hand on the gun, you can't trust anyone. A heart on the run keeps a hand on the gun. You can't trust anyone. And I think that describe, that can, can describe us in our relationship with the Lord because often our heart is on the run and so we don't talk to the Lord about our sin. And it keeps a hand on our gun. It gives us a defensive posture toward the Lord. We're guarded in our relationship and we feel like we can't trust anyone. In the end, yeah, we end up distant from the Lord our God. And you know what? That, that's something that the devil loves. The devil loves when you have unconfessed sin in your life. He loves it. Because the devil tempts you to sin, and then you fall, and then he tempts you to cover it up and not talk about it, and then you do that, and then he loves it that you're suffering inside being racked with guilt. You know, he doesn't just want you to sin, he wants you to not confess it and then feel bad about it too. He loves how, how guilt stretches the bane of sin so that it violates your soul through the twisting of lasting culpability. He loves to see your bones waste away and, and the juices of your life dry up in the summer sun. And I wonder how many of you here are letting the devil win because you're hiding your sin. It's not what God wants for you. Think about it. God already knows about your sin. Newsflash. The Lord already knows everything about your life. There's nothing hidden there. You, you can't surprise God. right? You can hide things from other people in your life, but you can't hide things from God. He reads you like an open book. He sees everything. 
you, you can't hide anything from him. He knows all of your sins. He knows all of your secrets. So what's stopping you from confessing to him? The Lord wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be glad. He wants you to be joyful as a Christian. He wants you to be happy as a believer. And when you bottle up your confession of sin, then you also bottle up your profession of praise and you rob yourself of joy. So stop biting your own neck. Take your hand off the gun and trust the one. And break the silence and get it off your chest. Tell God about the matches in your pocket. Move toward joy, brothers and sisters. Your lack of happiness is only harming yourself. Confess your sin. Confess it. Verse 5 says this, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I acknowledged my sin to you, says David. I uncorked the bottle that I've been, that I've been bottling stuff up in, and I let it all pour out. I let it all pour out. And I told God all the things that he already knows, and I brought the things that I thought I was hiding out into the light. And I said, yes, Lord, this is what I've been doing. This is what I have done. And I got it, off, got it all off my chest, says David. I broke your commands, Lord. This is how I failed. This is all the stuff that I didn't do that I knew I was supposed to do. And this is all the stuff that I did do that I wasn't supposed to do. Here are all my dark and dirty secrets. Here are the ones that I'm scared other people are going to find out about. Here's all my sin. And I admit it. I acknowledge it. And if you listen carefully to this psalm, you can sense the feeling of relief as David confesses his sins. I did not cover up my iniquity, says. I did not cover up my iniquity. Some of you women here own cover-up. That's part of your makeup case. And you have, you've got concealer, which is used to conceal, to cover up and hide the blemishes and the eye circles and the uneven skin tone. And it helps you sort of fake a fresh-faced look. Well, let me tell you a story about my oldest brother, because he doesn't watch my sermons either. My oldest, my oldest brother, when he was, I think he was about 20 or something, we're sitting at the table. We used to have one of those little basketball nets. Some of you will remember this. You'd get this little basketball net. You could get it sort of at the dollar store or something, and it had suction cups on it. And you lick those, and you stick them on the wall, and you get a little foam basketball, and you have massive, crazy basketball games with your brothers in the kitchen as you're trying to dunk on the little net up in the thing, and your mom yells at you. Was I the only one who ever experienced it? Some of you, some of you had that. So I remember a time we were all sitting at the table, and I, I think what happened was the basketball net was up near the table, and it fell off, and my, my brother Mike, he grabbed that, he licked that sucker, and stuck it right on his forehead. And he sat at the table, ha, 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 got a basketball net sitting on my forehead. You know, we're, you know I imagine, we probably didn't do it, but we probably would, would like, use his face as a backboard, like throw some potatoes at it or something. So big joke, you know, big all funny, funny, you know, it's probably time to read the Bible or something like that. Take that basketball net off your thing, takes it off, boom. Well, that suction cup had stuck to his forehead and all the blood in his forehead had come up to the top of his skin and he had a big red circle right on his forehead. This was a Saturday night. He wakes up Sunday morning to go to church. He looks in the mirror. He's got a big red circle right on his forehead where the suction cup stuck on his forehead. So like any responsible 20-year-old man, he was about to go to church. He went to his sister to borrow some cover-up, some concealer. I think my brother is one of the few men in Smithville Canadian Reformed Church that wore makeup to church. Well, it's one thing you put cover up on your face because you're embarrassed, but don't put cover up on your soul. 
don't put cover up on your soul. Because that's our tendency. We want to cover sin up. We want to conceal it. We want to hide it. We want to give ourselves a sort of a fake, fresh-faced look. David's saying, I'm not going to put any cover up on. Today is a no-makeup day. I'm admitting what I really look like. I'm saying into the Lord in prayer, here I am, Lord, with all my wrinkles and pimples. I'm here, and I'm not trying to hide that i got a sin nature, and I'm not trying to cover up anything. I'm being honest with you, Lord. This is how I have offended you, and this is where I've failed, and this is where I've fallen short, and this is where I've been faking, and this is where I've been pretending, and here's all the stuff that I've been hiding, and here's the stuff that I've plainly just been scared to admit, scared to even put words to. This is how I failed, not just to merit your love, but this is how I've succeeded in earning your judgment. And here I am, Lord, I confess my transgressions. No hand on the gun, no heart on the run, no cover-up, no bottling it up. I'm just putting it all out there. What's confession of sin look like in your life? I imagine for a lot of us, confession of sin looks like a little one-liner that we add on the end of a prayer and forgive us all our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. I think this psalm encourages us to deepen our prayer life, to deepen it. You you can pray sincere prayers that that are general, like we often do in the church. I have sinned frequently and grievously against you, Lord, and against my neighbor. I failed to live up not just to your stand, not just to my own standards, but to your standard, standards. Lord, if you were to judge me today, I would deserve death. I was born in sin, and there's all sorts of evil desires that fill my heart, and I transgress your law, and I, I fail to do what you ask, and I seem to always be doing what I shouldn't be doing, and I do the things that I tell other people not to do. And so I'm sorry, Lord. I confess my sin before you. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. You can pray sincere, general prayers like that. And then you, you can also pray sincere, specific, personal prayers. Lord, I have sinned against fill in the blank. I've sinned against my spouse. I've sinned against my sister. I've sinned against my brother. I've sinned against my friend. I've sinned against my, my colleague in the cubic, cubicle next to me and justified it just because he chews so loud. I confess, Lord, that I have once again, fill in the blank, I have once again lied to my parents. I've once again yelled at my kids. I once again acted without courage. Lord, I confess that once again I failed to be gentle. I confess that once again I spent money that I didn't have. I confess, Lord, that I grumbled and complained today. I confess, Lord, that I looked at pornography. I confess, Lord, that I was totally impatient. I confess that I had an opportunity to help someone and I didn't even bother. I confess that I stuck my head in the sand again about my responsibilities today or that I manipulated that conversation or that I got drunk or that I lacked self-control when it came to food or that I pretended in front of that person to be somebody I'm not or that I talked too much and listened too little. And I confess, Lord, that I didn't follow through on my promises and all I did was work or all I did was be lazy. Brothers and sisters, you can pray sincere generals' prayers but also pray sincere personal specific prayers. Silence... And sin is a deadly cocktail. 
You don't want your bones to turn to powder, do you? You don't want the juices of your life to dry up, do you? Confess your sins to the Lord. Do it in personal prayer. Do it in prayer with others. Do it in silence. Do it loud. Do it before you go to sleep. And do it in church when you come to these services. This is the first step in being a happy Christian. Why are, why are we so afraid to confess our sin to other people? Why is it that sometimes I'm afraid to confess my sin to my wife, for instance? Why does that happen? Why do we get afraid of that? I think that, well, I can speak for myself, that, that I'm afraid to confess what I've done wrong to another person is A, because I really don't like looking like a fool. I like to have people think that I'm not a fool. And also, I'm afraid of how they're going to react. Right? I'm, I'm afraid of being a fool, and I'm afraid they're gonna, how they're going to react. But here's the thing. God already knows you're a fool. You don't have to show him that one. He knows it. He knows I'm a fool. And then if you're afraid that how God is going to react, you don't need to be afraid of how God's going to react because he clearly tells you very explicitly how he is going to react ahead of time. All right? Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave it. He forgave the iniquity of my sin. You could say, he forgave the sinfulness of my sin. He forgave it all. That's how God is going to react when you confess to him. He tells you ahead of time, he will forgive all of your sin. He'll forgive the sinfulness of your sin. He'll forgive it all. If you come to him sincerely, not deceitfully, but sincerely and honestly, the Lord will forgive you. Verse 1, blessed, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's not a forgiveness that's sort of like, oh yeah, I forgive you, but actually, I'm really still angry about it. And it's not sort of like, oh yeah, I, I forgive you, but I'm going to hold a grudge, but the reality is I'm just tired, so I don't really want to talk to you about this right now. It's not that kind of forgiveness. It's God forgiving and saying, I take your sin and I separate your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. You can't get farther than that. That's how far I separate all of your sin from you. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Our sin is covered. We try to put cover up on our sin. But when we confess it to the Lord, the Lord covers it properly and eternally. Micah 7 says that he casts all of our sin into the depths of the sea. He covers our sin with an ocean of grace. An ocean of grace. So your sin is never to be seen again. Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He doesn't count your sins against you. The Lord is not keeping a tally on your, on your sins, okay? It's not like when you confess your sins, he's like, oh, well, you just did the same one yesterday. He's not keeping a tally. He doesn't count your sins against you. He doesn't keep a list of your crimes. All right? He doesn't like, well, I'm not going to forgive that one because you did it three times last week. No. He does not count your iniquity. You know, you've heard this family story before. My, my wife's grandfather, he, he used to keep a calendar where he'd mark on the calendar all the days that he had arguments with his wife. And one day he took it out to show her, look at all the days we had arguments. The Lord doesn't do that. The Lord doesn't have a calendar in his back pocket that he's keeping a tally on how bad you are. 
Because when you come to him with a sincere heart, he forgives it and he covers it eternally. This is what God does. When you stop bottling up your emotion, when you get it off your chest, when you acknowledge your sin and confess your sin and stop covering up, when you bend the knee and you say, Lord, in a sincere heart, I have sinned. I've sinned, Lord. Then the Lord looks at you and says, What sin? What sin? I don't see any. I've carried that away as far as the east is from the west. What sin? I don't see any sin. I've buried it in an ocean of grace. What sin? This past week, a a class at Ambassadors Christian School was reflecting on the idea of that God fully pardons our iniquity, and one of the students piped up. I don't know which one it was. You can tell me. That means it's like it never happened, Mrs. Van Groothiest. From the mouth of babes, because that's exactly what it means. It's like it never happened. It's like the old hymn, His Be the Victor, says it this way. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. He knoweth none. Because his forgiving grace means that in his eyes it's like they never happened. The glory of Christian confession is that the Lord knows you already knows you're a fool and you know how he's going to react. When you admit your sin before the Lord and you spread it all out honestly and you acknowledge, he says, what sin? You look at all the sin that you spread all around you and in that moment of confession you, you magically discover that somehow, as verse 10 of our text says, the only thing that surrounds you is the steadfast love of God. Amazing love, how can it be? How can it be that when I, as as a fool, sin again and again and again, that the most holy God would forgive me and not count my sins against me? If you asked David that question, he would have said, it's God's, God's grace and mercy as symbolized in the sacrifices on the temple, on the, on the tabernacle altar, altar, and the hope of the Messiah to come. And as Christians, we know that answer in a more robust, full way, don't we? We read from Romans 4, which quotes Psalm 32 to give us the answer. The reason that God does not count our sins against us is that Jesus took our sins upon himself. Our iniquity, your iniquity, your transgression, your guilt, your shame, the sinfulness of your sin fell on Him. All your wrongdoing and all the sins that you have ever committed was the weight that pressed upon Jesus. It was all put on Jesus. And though innocent, Christ felt the heavy hand of God on Him for your sins. And so He spread His hands on the cross and died for them so that He could separate your sin as from the east is from the west from you. And though he was not guilty, he kept silent and he bore your sin and he groaned as his strength was dried up on the cross and he shed his blood so that when you confess your sins with a sincere heart, you're covered in the blood of Christ. You're covered. And Jesus was never a moment in his life racked with guilt. But he was crucified for yours. 
rose again so that all the righteousness and all the perfection and satisfaction of Jesus might then be counted to you so that Christ is your righteousness. Jesus Christ makes Psalm 32 possible. Jesus Christ makes Psalm 32 possible. Think about this beautiful New Testament text. It's a familiar one. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you. It doesn't say this. It doesn't say, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and merciful to forgive you. It says God is faithful and just to forgive you. Because God has already punished your sin, the cross of Christ. And so it would be unjust for God to not forgive you. Because it's already been paid at the cross of Christ. And that means that when you confess your sin, brothers and sisters, then God looks down on you. And to quote Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg River Catechism, He imputes to you, He counts to you, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if, listen to this, as if you never had and never committed any sin. As if you yourself had accomplished all the obedience that Christ rendered. God looks down on you, no matter what sin it is that you're confessing. If it's with a sincere heart, He looks down on you in Jesus Christ, and God smiles at you. He smiles at you, and He says, all I see is steadfast love that spreads to the horizon, an ocean of grace. What sin? It's as if it never happened. That's exactly what it means. You see why, why David wants to shout out in verse 1, Blessed, happy is he, is the one who is, who is forgiven. Blessed, happy is he against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Happy, silence and sin is a deadly cocktail, but confession and forgiveness is the elixir of life and of joy. Confession, to use mathematical terms, confession plus forgiveness equals joy. And you see why, why David, he wants to yell out in verse 6 to the whole world, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You won't be troubled. You're a hiding place for me, Lord. You preserve me for trouble. And you surround me with shouts of deliverance. He's calling us out and saying, join the, the, the choir of the church. Join me, David, join Augustine, join Martin Luther, you know, join the choir of angels and shout for joy. Put a smile on your face. For many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust the Lord. Brothers and sisters, banish that guilt and banish that shame. No more heart on the run and no more hand on the gun. No more weight on the chest. No more biting your own neck. No more bones wasting away, and no more groaning, and no more strength sapped by the summer sun. Only steadfast love. And in words of Kirk Franklin, oh, you can't take my joy, devil. True and total forgiveness in Jesus Christ is life-giving, and it's life-alterating and life-liberating. When you admit that you're weak, then you're strong. Because joy of the joy of the Lord is your strength. It raises your head and it puts your shoulders back and it gives a shine to your eyes and a smile to your face and, and a pep to your step. That's why the psalm finish, finishes off with these words. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Brothers and sisters, be happy Christians. Be happy Christians. Smile behind those masks. 
Be happy believers. Confess your sin and shout for joy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're happy to confess this afternoon that we're sinners, but we are joyful sinners this afternoon. Because you turn our wailing into dancing, and you remove our sackcloth, and you clothe us with joy so our hearts can sing your praises and not be silent. Lord our God, we will praise you forever. And we give you thanks with all our might. In Jesus' name, amen.